This is Anne Nicholson-Weber, and you're listening to the Talk Theatre in Chicago interview podcast for the week of February 22nd. This week we're going to be doing something quite different from our usual format. Last month, January 11th, there was an event hosted by the League of Chicago Theatres at Chicago Dramatists, which featured the authors of a new book called Outrageous Fortune, The Life and Times of the New American Play. The book has been rather controversial, has stirred up quite a bit of conversation on blogs uh, and live within the theater community. So we thought it would be very interesting for our audience to hear some of that presentation. There was a second part of the presentation, which was conversation between participants uh, and uh, the audience members uh, with the authors and the other members of the panel. We did not record that, but we do have for you, uh, only lightly edited, the presentation by Victoria Bailey of the Theater Development Fund and Todd London, one of the authors of Outrageous Fortune. Thanks very much. It's great to be here. Can everybody hear me? Are we good? Yep. Okay. I'm, I'm the executive director at Theater Development Fund. Theater Development Fund, or TDF, is a performing arts service organization. We're located in New York City. We are... 40 years old. We're known, I guess, first and foremost for our second program, which is to run the TKTS booths in New York City, which started about four years into our existence. But TDF was actually founded. Um, the, the kind of inspiration for the founding came from a couple of folks working in the foundation world, the 20th Century Fund in particular. And the organization was founded, ironically enough, to find ways to help support the American play because it was the perception in 1966 that the serious American play was dying on Broadway in New York and that, you know, something should be done to help it. And part of what the idea behind TDF was we would build audiences to help support important productions. And the vision, actually, of the founder, this was all the vision of the founder who was a man named John Booth who worked at the 20th Century Fund. Um, TDF has developed a whole host of programs over the years. I came to TDF in 2001. John was still on the board, and John, one of the very first things I heard about was a project that John had wanted to do for a long time, which was to do a study that would look at um, the, the production of the new American play and the issues surrounding that. And he started thinking about this in the mid-'90s. Um, he was not, this was not to be about development, this was to be about production, and it was to be about the lives of playwrights. And it resonated a lot for me because I had spent, um, prior to being at TDF, I was the general manager at the Manhattan Theatre Club for 15 years, so I'd spent a lot of time on the management side dealing with the production of new plays. So we undertook this project, and the idea was it would be research-based. Um, in other words, it would be based in facts, and early on, we went to Todd and said, would you like to direct this study? And Todd said yes, and was exactly the right person to do it. Um, we started with surveys. We collated uh, email addresses and names for close to 600 playwrights. We got everybody's email address, and in the first round, we sent out 340 playwrights surveys, and we got 250 back almost overnight. They came back so quickly that the IT folks at TDF thought that there was a problem with the program. But as we heard later, writers were anxious to have something to fill out other than the blank page in front of them on their computer screen. <laughs> so they filled out the survey. 
Um, that so we had the writer surveys, and then the next thing we did was we looked at theaters. We we, we also surveyed theaters, and we did we had two groups when we looked at the theaters. The first thing we did was we took a randomly selected group of theaters from the TCG directory. And then we also had a specific target group of 29 theaters that were theaters across the country that are known for producing new plays. Because, you know, one of the things we wrestled with is, did you do it completely randomly? But if you did it completely randomly, we were going to leave out the people who actually are doing this a lot. And uh, another theme that was really important to our committee, the oversight committee at TDF, was A, it had to be grounded in research, but B, this was not just to say this is the state of the theater, and there was a suspicion that there would be an element of it wasn't all good news. We also had to look at what was working, right? We had to look at the things that were working and that maybe could help address what problems might or might not show up. And so we got the playwright surveys, we had the theater surveys, we got the information, Zani analyzed the information, we got, we had a report, and at that point we went back on the road. And at that point what we did was the three of us went out to um, eight cities, six, Chicago, Minneapolis, L.A., San Francisco, and then in New York bringing in Washington playwrights, East Coast writers as well. And we tested the assumptions, and we met separately with groups of playwrights, and then we met with artistic directors. And so we held roundtables, and we had conversations. And out of those conversations, somewhere along the line in the midst of those conversations, this went from being a report to a book. Um, and that, that, those conversations, re, you know, building on the research led us to begin to see the strands and the threads that we're going to talk about today. And I think what we're doing now, um, and this is our first stop, and we're hoping that we can help you start some local conversations in your own communities about what you've learned, what you've heard, what resonates, what doesn't, what works, what might work, what might not work here. Um, I think, you know, we're starting here. Obviously, it's, it's really wonderful to start out in a community that's as strong in the theater as Chicago is. Um, so it's really to share um, and to maybe have some, have begin some conversations. I don't know what comes next. Um, so I'm going to hand it over to Todd. Um, um. I'm also incredibly happy to be here. I'm from Chicago. I was able to visit my family on a work tour. That's very great. Uh, and I uh, work at New Dramatists in New York, which is uh, a sister organization of Chicago Dramatists. So this is particularly um, a pleasant way to start what feels like a very unknown journey for this part of the book. Um, as Tori said, we are aiming at a real comprehensive sense of the ecosystem of new play production in this country now. So um, today we're going to talk thematically through some of the major themes of the work, uh, in depth about some and glancingly at some. Um, but the thing about this uh, study and why it became a book and why we're pushing it as a book is that um, it's full of details, each one of which may resonate differently with different groups of people. Uh, we won't really touch on the details today, but you know, if you're interested in commissions, there's a section on commissions. If you're interested in enhancement, if you're interested in audience education, so on and so forth, we've tried to sort of catch, as one of the playwrights who wrote back said, catch the whole harangue in one place. Um, 
It has been going on a long time. Uh, I hope you don't mind, BJ Jones. I'm going to out you. Uh, he, uh, BJ came up to me in the uh, lobby and said, you know, I wish we had been part of the initial um, study group of this. And I said, BJ, you were. And uh, he said, when was that? And I told him about a meeting that had happened at the league uh, about two and a half. He was like, that meeting all those years ago? So we have been, uh, we've been working on this for a long time. Um, personally, what I hope to get out of this is, uh, Sandy Schinner had just asked me, what are we trying to do? One thing is to spread the words, to, to spread these findings so the field can deal with them, so you can uh, figure out what you want to do with them. The other is to get playwrights and artistic directors, funders, managers, the whole of us together in rooms speaking authentically and honestly to each other, because one of our prime th findings was that that's really not happening. Um, and then also... Um, you know, in the places where the mechanism of new play production is stuck, you know, to, to help find ways to get it moving. So that's really what I personally am here for. I'm going to talk at you for probably about 45 or 50 minutes to just kind of throw what we know at you. Um, then we're going to take a little break. We'll have time for questions and discussion in a big group. If it feels like it might be um, of value, we might break into small groups so you can think about what feels urgent. Um, you know, I invite you to listen to this as yourselves, of course, as practitioners, but also to listen for the community, for Chicago, for the field, and to really think um, think beyond just your own experience and ways that this might play. And while we're on the subject of listening, as I said, we have no idea where this is going to go. We are Ben is going to be kind of listening or taping this, and it's just so that we can figure out when we're all done eight cities later kind of where we are and what some of the themes are. So. Great. So um, today I'm going to talk about some major themes that are not uh, necessarily the chapter heads of the book, and they are how playwrights and theaters see each other, uh, the economics of playwriting, which is sort of the statistical heart of the work, um, the field-wide emphasis on premieres and its consequences, the downsizing of the new American play, both in terms of size of the plays, the venues of the plays, and the ambitions, the producerial or playwriting ambitions, whatever they might be, um, the dwindling of audiences for plays, and uh, a little bit of, from the last chapter of the book about what kinds of practices and attempts are working or where people are exploring ways to deal with some of these things. Um, I'm going to spend the most of the time on this sort of division between the perceptual division between the way theaters perceive the field and the way playwrights perceive the field and on the economics of playwriting, and I'll sort of zip through the rest of it. Um, the book itself is divided into six chapters. Uh, the first is uh, the, uh, the, the divide between playwrights and theaters, how they see the field. The second is playwriting lives, you know, what are the economics and conditions of playwrights. Um, the way of the play is about how plays move through the system, what are the gateways, what are the obstacles, that kind of thing. Um, the, the next chapter is uh, producing in the real world, essentially. What does the field look like? What are the struggles and hardships and uh, what is the work of producing new plays? And the sixth chapter, which uh, is part of the study that would have made sense for TDF to do because it is an audience uh, service organization to a large part about developing audience for the theater, but we never intended to be part of this study. But what happened in the study, and I remember it vividly at that meeting low of these many years ago, BJ, in Chicago, which is that every, almost every group of playwrights and every group of artistic directors would get in the room and say, 
uh, I don't see anything in the findings about the audience, and this all leads to the audience. So the last chapter, um, the penultimate chapter, is about the audience, and then finally what we call positive practices and novel ideas. We don't call them best practices because that suggests that they would work for everybody, and as we all know, nothing works you know, nothing that works at Theater A also is going to work at Theater B, or that works in Chicago is going to work in New York or Minneapolis or Atlanta. Um, so I'm going to start with the key, the first finding, which is um, what we, among ourselves, talked about as the divide between uh, playwrights and theaters. We've defined the universe of this uh, study as the nonprofit theaters, the not-for-profit theaters, because as we discuss in the, um, we sort of look at Broadway and how new plays have fared over time, and all commercial off-Broadway, and of course how um, the the center of new play development and production has moved so firmly over the last you know many decades into the nonprofit theater. So that's really where we focus. Um, the report describes what we call a collaboration in crisis. Uh, it locates that crisis not in individual writers, artistic directors, or producers, but in a system of theatrical production that has become increasingly alienating to individual artists and inhospitable to the cultivation of new work for the stage, despite the dedication of so many people, and despite what we found in this uh, statistical study, which is an extraordinary amount of new play activity across the country. In a field defined by collaboration, the conversation between theaters and playwrights has grown discordant and inauthentic. Playwrights and artistic directors are viewing the same picture from opposing angles. Ultimately, they don't see the same picture at all. And I'll talk about what those two visions are. Of all the findings in this study, the divide between playwrights and theaters may be the most profound and troubling of all. It is our hope by recording this division, by talking about it with you, by getting people in rooms to talk across the division, that we can do something at least to start to bridge it. Uh, so the world according to the playwright. What does a playwright see uh, according to the, our conversations and statistics? Playwrights are remarkably consistent, even unanimous, in their view of the current system of production. This is how they describe it. The playwright-producer relationship, by nature an intimate, invested, idiosyncratic partnership, has become, in most cases, a mechanistic process driven less by creative collusion and mutual artistic excitement than by such institutional concerns as marketing, box office, and fundraising. Where playwrights believe risk should be... This is the point of view of playwrights again. Where playwrights believe risk should be a guiding principle, risk aversion rules the day. Where lasting relationships between theaters or producers and playwrights were once seen as a key to success, such loyalty now seems rare. The continuity necessary to artistic growth is almost impossible to come by. Bodies of work go unsupported, while theaters vie for a handful of plays that have already proven themselves in New York or at other prominent theaters across the country. So this is breaks down this this critique of the theater system by playwrights breaks down into first of all almost without exception the playwrights describe today's theater as corporate implicitly or explicitly playwrights equate theaters with institutional theaters i know many of you here represent small and mid-sized theaters so it's interesting to, or what what remains of the mid-sized theaters um, so it's important to know that when playwrights sit around and talk together and talk about theater and theaters, they, their attention goes towards the larger and institutional theaters for reasons that will become, I think, clear. 
Um, uh, implicitly or explicitly, playwrights equate theaters with institutional theaters, and they level their criticisms at those theaters. They uh, see those theaters as um, embodying passionless decision-making, being top-heavy, real estate-based, and unartistic. They, see, uh, uh, they describe a profound lack of leadership in the American theaters. Where vision is required, playwrights say, there is conservatism. Where there should be boldness, there is cautious pragmatism. Um, they frequently talk about Joe Papp. He comes up in many conversations among playwrights as the most frequently cited example of the brave, devotional, idiosyncratic creative producer that they feel is lacking in the field. They see theaters as board-driven. Finally, playwrights blame the corporate condition of the theater on boards of directors who, with theaters in second and third generations of leaders, have longer tenured and incre- longer tenure and increased influence over the culture within their theaters. So they see essentially the theaters as being run by their boards. Um, a multiple OB uh, award-winning playwright puts it this way: No board goes to an artistic director and says, "Can't you be a little riskier?" <laughs> They see theaters as serving audiences, not artists, and they see them as formally conservative. I'm going to talk about these two pieces because um, these two last pieces because these are really key in, uh, key ways into the statistical responses of the playwrights. More than 82 percent of the writers agree or strongly agree that concerns about audience reception and interest are prohibitive obstacles to the producing of new plays. Makes it the single most daunting hurdle for a new play to get produced is how, from the point of view of playwrights, is that the theater is worried about how the audience will take it, whether the audience will like it. That's 82% of the playwrights put that right up at the top of the obstacles. They imagine the theaters uh, look at that. And we're going to see that the theaters see it really differently very shortly. Secondly, um, in terms of personal obstacles, or, or obstacles for them as playwrights personally, 55% of the playwrights claim that unconventional style will block the path to production for a play. So they, um, for playwrights who talk a lot about you know, innovation, formal things, writing for younger audiences, um, new ways of writing and communicating with audiences, they feel that unconventionality, especially narrative unconventionality, will block the, the path of the play. Not surprisingly, um, okay, so that, that's kind of the, the layout, that's the picture from the point of view of playwrights, from the theater's point of view. Um, first of all, just to reiterate, there is an incredibly high level of activity across this country in terms of new play production. Um, uh, and we'll see some statistics on that a little bit later. Not surprisingly, leaders of American not-profit theaters see the state of playwriting and new play production in a different light. For the record, there are artistic directors who agree to some extent with the assessment of the writers. The head of one of the country's largest theaters describes the corporate, quote, corporate institutionalized and systematized structure for new plays as sometimes strangling the range of those plays. The veteran artistic director of a much smaller theater says simply, and this echoes other uh, artistic directors, the more institutionalized you get, the harder it is to say, I like it, and that's it. More, though, artistic directors worry about other things. Here's what they worry about. They worry about losing audiences, especially to other media, They rail at the current critical climate and the marginalization of theater within the culture as a whole. And I just want to take a stop at this moment to say one thing about, because I know we have uh, some blog uh, people here, and we were supposed to have somebody from um, 
the Chicago Time Out, I think, in the House. They are not here to write about this. They're, so uh, they may write about the book or the presentation, but as we have conversation, just to know that you are free to speak, you know, honestly, that will not you will not be written about in the press. Um, so theaters rail at the current critical climate uh, and the marginalization of the theater within the th- culture as a whole. Most share a sense that new work is financially riskier than work on classics, musicals, and familiar titles with bankable stars. They agree with playwrights that the usual method of new play development have dead-ended. Mostly they struggle with very real and very difficult economics of production of new work in an environment where small theaters scrape by, mid-sized theaters face extinction, and even some large theaters see themselves as one flop away from folding. Um, so in terms of that difficulty, I want to just to give you some statistics. Two-thirds of the theaters surveyed believe that it has become harder or much harder to develop new plays in the past decade. That is two-thirds of the field, and this was a finding before the crash of 2008. So before the, ec- the economy turned down, um, two-thirds of the field felt that things had gotten harder. And the reasons were these. The expenses are too high. There's not enough funding for new work. The audiences are dwindling and not appreciating new plays. Um, Another finding is that uh, while artistic directors agree that there is a boom in playwriting, that our profession of playwrights is uh, actually quite vital and um, large, energetic right now, they disagree on the quality of the plays being produced. So there are, there's, there are voices kind of on both sides, I would say almost equal voices that say, there are many more new plays, good new plays, than I can produce, and others who say that we're in a period of, of um, dearth as opposed to surfeit. Um, this is how theaters rank the obstacles to new play production. Uh, cast size or composition is their biggest obstacle, Cost, second biggest obstacle. Technical demands, third. Fourth, hard to find, this goes to the question of dearth or surfeit, hard to find work that makes an important contribution. And fifth, concern about audience reception. So remember, 82% of the playwrights thought audience reception was the deciding factor. For, play, for theaters, it was, uh, they don't consider it prohibitive hardly at all. 31% as opposed to the writers, 82% consider it uh, prohibitive. So that's a, a real, real key finding for us, that the theaters think, that, think or say that they are not thinking about audience, and the playwrights believe that the theaters are, are pandering obsessed and obsessed with audience. Um, so for theaters, it's only the fifth obstacle. For playwrights, it's the runaway first. On the subject of plays of quality or, and merit, you know whether they exist... Where, where you find work of quality and merit. Artistic directors and their associates are much more muted, much more polite in their criticism of playwrights than the other way around. <laughs> Few, and that's put delicately. <laughs> yeah. Few dispute that we live in a boom time for playwriting, as I said. More professionally accomplished playwrights are apparently writing more plays than our theater has seen before. Has all this activity led to a similar boom in quality? Artistic directors are split, as I said. Um, some of the uh, the writers, uh, some of the artistic directors that feel that they lack exciting choices, blame playwrights for not finishing their work, for writing plays that aren't ready for production, or for writing plays that feel like TV. 
Here's a quote. There have been very, very few plays that have been willing to tackle the big issues of our time, an artistic director argues. Quote again. And the unfortunate thing is that you keep reading all of these plays about big issues by bad writers and all of these plays by good writers about nothing. And that's something that we actually heard from a number of people, that really the good writers out there are writing about sort of small interests, really beautifully constructed plays, and then there are people who are sort of t it, more bluntly and less talentedly sort of dealing with the issues of the day. Um, several artistic directors confirmed the notion that, re that form rather than content is the stumbling block for plays. This is my favorite quote in the book. It was an artistic director of a major regional theater. It would be easier for me to do a play like Quills, in which Jesus comes out of the grave with three erect penises and fucks Mary on the floor, than it would be to do No Man's Land by Harold Pinter, a play that is abstract in its storytelling. Now that, we noted, is a, an example of a 35-year-old play by a Nobel laureate. Um, so what's the chance for a formally abstract play by an unknown playwright in that world? Um, the most pervasive complaint from theaters is that playwrights are not writing for our audiences. One thing everyone seems to agree on, opportunities for productions are severely limited and playwrights need production to grow, that somehow we've replaced production opportunities as development with developmental opportunities that do not lead to production. Um, how that can happen is less than clear. Again, we've been focusing on the system of new play production. One thing that system seems to have done, especially as theaters grow larger, is inadvertently driven a wedge between the producer and the playwright uh, in a way that the system was, was created to welcome, you know, the new play development and literary offices were in, in, created to invite playwrights into theaters to create conversation with playwrights, but it seems over time as the theaters have grown larger to, driven a, a, to drive a wedge between that traditional playwright-producer uh, intimacy, and it has confused the role of the traditional pr producer. Um, lack of access to, this is a finding, lack of access to artistic directors, the people who make the final choice about what plays pr to produce, is seen by playwrights as the single greatest obstacle to getting their plays produced. This is not, the audience reception is about what they think the theaters think of as obstacles, but for them, two-thirds of the playwrights see themselves as hampered by their inability to get their plays to the decision maker, which is the artistic director, because there are so many layers of people and processes in between, and this obviously is less true in smaller theaters than the theaters as they grow. And this pointed to something that became a sort of pervasive theme of the book, which is the notion of the disappearing producer. Um, we had a, a lovely uh, conversation with Elizabeth McCann, who's a sort of leading old school Broadway producer, worked a lot with Albie and others, um, who said, uh, and I think we have the quote up here, the playwright and the producer have to be joined, she was saying, for the theater to really thrive. Um, and, and what we found is that the growth of institutions separates artistic directors from playwrights, and literary offices act as buffers as opposed to conduits. Plays are chosen with input from many departments, short-circuiting that artistic director's passionate connection. I love this play, I have to do it. Though it's very clear that in those rare cases, like one play a season maybe, and we heard this from artistic directors too, that, you know, I love this play, we're going to, you know, we're going to 
go through hell and back to produce it, but that happens uh, not so frequently. Um, resources gather around artistic directors as directors, while producers get uh, producing functions get spread out among the staff. So if your work, if the artistic director is directing your play, everybody's supporting it. If the <laughs> if somebody else is directing your play. You don't see necessarily artistic director. You see other people in the staff who are sort of line producing. So that's a buffer. And then unlike traditional commercial producers, artistic curators and institutions don't control the purse strings. So there's a whole management level that is inter uh, that is sort of intercepting or mediating between that passionate connection of the producer and the playwright. Okay, so that's the this is the, that's the end of the first. Uh, theme, which is this division between playwrights and theaters. Um, the second key finding, and the one that I'm going to spend the most time and speak uh, the most or uh, statistically about, is the economics and lives of playwrights. Because this is stuff that, um, even for those of us, you know, like me who work in the theater, with I just work with playwrights. It's what I do. I don't produce. Um, seeing these findings in black and white were were kind of uh, stunning. Um, These are the words of a playwright in Los Angeles. I don't want to give up the idea that we can make a life as playwrights. I want health insurance, I want kids, but I can't do it as a playwright. You go from scarcity to that'll work for four months. I'm trusting that there is some continuity, some way to say, I am a professional playwright, I make my living as a playwright. I don't even know that that's in the language of most of the playwrights that I know. Um, I'm not going to give you any quotes today that do not in some way represent many people, okay? This is not about, oh, this was a really great quote. One person said it, but nobody else agrees. These are sort of summary quotes. The other thing I just want to um, underscore about something Tori said. When we surveyed the, play, the playwrights and we brought, we brought them in from many different sources, we were basically looking for professional working playwrights at the top of each level of career growth, So we weren't looking at people who wanted to be playwrights, who call themselves playwrights. We weren't looking at people who were like professional playwrights in waiting. We were looking at the top of the field of these sort of er, this, these. We made these muddy, these muddy um, categories. Categories. Er, you know, early to emerging, emerging to mid, mid to established, and that was all a way of sort of creating room for self-definition. But we were looking for the people who were accomplished at those levels. So these statistics represent the cream, not the the people who haven't made it in yet. Um, financially, there is no way to see playwriting as anything but a losing proposition, a profession without an economic base. It's not a romantic notion that playwrights must be prepared to be poor. It's a fact. The economics of playwriting are impossible for all but the merest few of playwrights, and even, even for them it's almost impossible to sustain. The average playwright earns between $25,000 and $39,000 annually. Okay, so that's, so playwrights, the two-thirds of playwrights top out at $40,000, and nearly a third make less than $25,000. Slightly more than half of that income, which is already low, comes from sources unrelated to playwriting. So half of a playwright's earnings at that low level come from day jobs, outside work, other forms of employment that have nothing to do with the theater. Approximately 49% of playwrights' total income comes from playwright-related activities 
and these are our 258 respondents. TV, teaching, film writing are all included in that category of playwright-related, and only 15% of their total income, so 15% of 25,000, or 15% of, at the top end, 40,000, comes from playwright production-related activities. Those activities include licensing and publication royalties, grants, awards, commissions, and royalties. So all of those activities account over a five-year period for these sample playwrights at the top of their profession at each level for only about 15% of the $25,000 to $40,000 that they earn. Only 3% of that income comes from royalties. So what we have is we have a system that is based on a commercial model of paying playwrights. Playwrights will make their living through royalties, but a smaller sampling, because we had to go back to the playwrights to ask them to unpack some of this for us, and we had a smaller sampling, but it seems to be confirmed anecdotally for us that about 3% of their total income comes from royalties, which is supposed to be the cornerstone of their earning potential. And there are some other reasons for this that we'll talk about. This means that a playwright making the top average, 39000 a year, might make $5,850 from plays generally and about eleven seventy from royalties. A playwright earning $25,000 a year, the bottom of the average, but still more than a third of the writers, might make $3,750 from plays generally and $750 a year from royalties on average. Essentially, our whole system of paying playwrights is based on a commercial royalty model that doesn't work. And another thing I just want to say as a sort of gloss about this, our playwrights are not young. The average, I don't remember what the average age of the playwrights are, but um, this included, uh, I think the average age was, you know, up in the high 30s. or I was, was going to say high 30s, low 40s. Low 40s. Call so, it 40. So this isn't about childhood bohemia. That, you know, you're poor for a while, you get another job, you make more money. This is consistent across the, uh, the span of age. Just a note about commissions, because uh, one of the responses to this kind of information is, well, commissions pay f- for what the royalties don't. <coughs> playwrights commi- uh, consider commissions a mixed bag. It's a very hot topic, as you might know, among playwrights. From it's all good, it's a vote of confidence, and a, a beneficial push to they're inhumane, the things theaters, give, uh, theaters who like you give you so they won't have to produce you. <laughs> Commission money averages between three and uh, $5,000 and exceeds $12,000 only 4% of the time. Plays, on average, take six months to two years to write once they're begun. So if you think about three dollars to $5,000 as an average to pay for how much time over two years or six months to two years, and you see that commissions pay for very little in terms of writing time. This... Um, Playwrights appreciate being in the commissioning theater sites and good graces, but mostly they prefer commitment to commission. To production. Commitment to commission. Commission. Yeah. And that was a kind of formulation that came up again and again. We want commitment. We don't care about commission. We like commission. We need the money, but we want commitment with it. Can I add that we particularly heard uh, from uh, writers of color uh, who have... um, in many cases, uh, a very ambivalent relationship with commissions, and some have gone as far as to say that commissions are money that they pay you to not produce your play, but, this, but so that they can put your picture in the, uh, in the brochure the annual for report. funders and the annual report. Um, just a br- brief note about grants. Um, 
uh, grants are a little bit better than commissions. 13% of a writer's income tends to come from grants, and about 70% of the writers have received them. Um, and the commission, the, the grants tend to be larger than commissions in the uh, averaging in the the largest average between 10 and 15,000, and others between five and 10,000. Um, 18% were $25,000 or more. Um, but uh, to pour some cold water on that happy picture, the two biggest uh, granting organizations of $25,000 grants or more, the NEA and TCG, TCG NEA grants, have um, gone away in the last 15 years or the last three years. So um, grants are, the grant picture is not looking great. Um, uh, on the subject of gender, how this all plays out in terms of gender... Um, the average income of male and female playwrights at the same career stage is the same, um, as is the number of plays produced overall. So there doesn't seem to be a differential between playwrights who identify at the same career stage by gender. What is significant is that women identify themselves at a lower career stage than men. So overall, earn, uh, women earn less than men. They tend to average 25,000 to to 4,000, where men tend to average 40 to 60,000 dollars, because women are not. We hear this anecdotally. Women are being produced in smaller spaces. They're they're not getting the career indicators that enable them to say, "Oh, I'm truly a mid-career playwright now," or "I'm truly an established playwright now." So they identify themselves right, as. But if lower. you use the externals as the way of defining yourself, where you get produced. Right. By using the size external of theater, size yeah, exactly. of theater, whatever, then they are they the women automatically tend to stay in that, that puts them in a lower category definitionally, right. which keeps the earnings down. Uh, on the subject of race and ethnicity, our findings are um, naughtier. It's harder to um, summarize them, so I'm going to just uh, uh, spew a little. Our responses from playwrights of color suggest both positive trends and chronic underrepresentation. The size of this response is too small for us to draw conclusions. Um, the writers of color we surveyed reported receiving roughly the same number of productions as their white counterparts at all career levels. They uh, earn the same amount average income uh, from a similar distribution of sources, including TV, TV teaching, film, royalties, etc., as their white colleagues. The overall income of respondents appears to be on par with that of white playwrights. One thing that this field does well is it pays everybody the same at all stages of career. It doesn't allow movement in the same way for all people, but, but there's equity at career stages. Um, unlike women writers in the survey, the writers of color did not identify themselves as lower career stage than white playwrights. If this equity held across the board, the field would have cause for celebration. Indeed, some cite these indications as proof that funding initiatives stressing diversity as well as social, uh, increased social consciousness about representation and diversity have greatly expanded opportunities for writers from traditionally underrepresented communities. They point to considerable careers of a handful of high-profile African-American, Hispanic, and Asian-American playwrights as added evidence of increased inclusion. And yet, writers of color consistently paint a discouraging picture. Moreover, our response rate is just over half the national representation of African Americans in the U.S. population and more than one-third below that of Hispanics. We got kind of, we hit the national demographics with Asian American playwrights and Native American playwrights, but um, about a third fewer Latino playwrights than are in the national mm -hmm. population and about half uh, the, the national standard for African Americans. 
Is this an accurate representation of the profession? Do black and Hispanic writers enter the profession in smaller numbers? Uh, we don't know. If so, why? Do they lack access to the kinds of schools and theaters and professional organizations from which we culled our lists? Do the bad economics of the playwright's life make the profession less attractive or viable to people from traditional American minorities already grappling with the economics of discrimination? Or do they choose to operate in a different theatrical universe? If so, how can they gain access? We don't have answers, obviously. For writers of color, theater lives and production can be complicated in ways that go beyond finances. The lack of diversity in the theaters themselves can provoke disturbing questions about the professional profession generally. What is the impact of this ubiquitous whiteness on play selection, marketing, and audience cultivation? As an African-American playwright observes, in matters of race, theaters are often unaware of their own racism. The sort of easy, quick example, though it's a little bit off theme here, is um, uh, white writers and, and writers of color talk about marketing in theaters very differently. White writers feel shut out of the marketing departments when they want to talk about how best to market their work, even if they're bringing a younger audience that the, than the theater normally has. Writers of color feel that they are made to be responsible for marketing within the theaters, that writers, that theaters come up to them and say, how do I reach your audience? Come talk to me. You know? uh, and white writers, it's like, don't talk to me. We're doing we literally had one roundtable where we had a writer of color and a white writer, and they were like, where it was like your ass tat, and it was like <laughs> right, right. total, like you know. I've never even met the marketing director. Um, uh, some these are just a list of some uh, other findings, and and one of the things we're finding, even you know, it's been all of a week since this book has sort of been out, and uh, the first line of response, of course, is the blogs, uh, which are mostly operated by playwrights, right? Um, so they're responding, and sometimes, and even in anticipation of the book, there were uh, are, there were. Uh, discussions of, of points that didn't seem to us major at all. So we're going to just throw some of them out. Yeah, you had a question. Yeah, sorry. Um, in the findings you're just talking about, is there a breakdown? There's one by gender, there's one by color. Is there one of women of color? No, we didn't, we didn't subdivide like that. Sample size wasn't big enough for that. Um, so uh, some other findings. Uh, a, there is a career track from playwright for playwrights, and it runs through about seven MFA programs, which account for nine, almost nine out of ten of the study playwrights with advanced professional training. Now, we went out to many of these programs, so there's, there's some skew in the findings that some of them responded, some didn't. We got email addresses from some of them, we didn't. But um, it looks like it's, you know, it feels like it's anecdotally, too, in the ballpark, if, if not exact. And at least one of the MFA programs that came up as one of the seven wouldn't give us any email addresses. So... It, 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 so, it's a little bit self-selected, but not at all completely. So it's not, this is uh, more, sh uh, it's more sort of defining the trend than it is specific statistically. Playwrights and artistic directors agree that the rubric emerging playwright is murky, overused, funder-driven, and that it should be retired. <laughs> um, this was a big one, and there's some uh, lengthy discussion about this in the book. Mid-career is really the crisis time for playwrights in America. It's the point at which a great many writers leave the field or concentrate mainly on TV or teaching. Rarely they, hardly anybody does both. Um, TV has become increasingly artistically fulfilling and not just lucrative. Since cable and, you know, such an explosion of good television writing opportunities and the writer is so important that playwrights more and more talk about TV as a way to go to get artistically fulfilled. 
Um, this uh, mid-career uh, crisis point is a huge drain on the field as people reach the level of maturity they've been cultivating. So in other words, they have the chops to do major mature work uh, and then they have, they're forced out of the field. There aren't funding opportunities for them. There are fewer grants and commissions for, you know, because everybody's cultivating the next hot thing, you know, and the emerging playwright. And so unless you have had a major hit play in your emerging career, it's really hard to sustain a mid-career in this country. Um, on average, 43 to 59% of playwrights' work never finds production. So about half of a playwright's body of work sits in a drawer because of the preciousness of production slots. And again, we're talking to the, the top playwrights. Plays are rarely produced by the theaters that develop them. So we did have, we, you know, we're drawing correlations between theaters that do readings and workshops of your work and do they produce them. And the fact is you're much more likely to get produced by a theater that's produced you before than to get produced by a theater that does a reading or a workshop of your play, you have like a one in you know, 10 chance to get produced by a theater that does a reading or a workshop. Um, okay, so, uh, so that's the playwright economic part. So now I'm going to move... Um, I like it. It's a nice... Uh, so I'm going to move through a, couple of the other, a few of the other key findings, and this will be a much shorter part, and then we'll get to questions and discussion. Um, the emphasis on premieres or what, what is, you know, affectionately and not so affectionately called premier-itis. Um, new, plays represent, <laughs> new plays represent almost half, 45.6%, of the surveyed theater's total offerings. Remember, we tip the scales toward theaters that do a lot of um, new play work. So about appro- approaching half is new, new play work. Nearly a third of the theater's seasons are reportedly world premieres. Now, this is a statistic that nobody, including the artistic directors in our conversations, believed. But theaters are reporting that a third of the work that they do is world premieres. You have question, Todd, in the back. I just had a quick definition. When you say new plays represent almost half, new plays does not mean world premieres. It means... We, we, never, we, we never got a, a suitable definition. Everybody is defining that in their own way. Okay. Um, and we debated that a lot, and we finally realized that in part, and I don't think this was just because we couldn't quite, it, letting them define it, this is so much about what people say they're doing that it ended up probably being the best, the most effective way to go anyway. We did ask playwrights at another point what they thought a new play was, and they had very mixed definitions. Right. You know, well, a play that I've stopped working on, a play that's, you know, been published. produced, you know, it's, yeah, a play has been published, but it's a real flow. But no one said a new play was only its first production. Right, nobody, nobody. thinks that. Um, fewer than two of these new works, less than one per season, are second productions of new plays. So these these are skewed, you know, wildly towards premieres and away from second productions. Half of the theaters seldom or never request scripts that have premiered at other theaters. And only one in five theaters regularly seeks scripts that have premiered elsewhere. This was actually, in Chicago, I remember, a real bone of 
uh, anxiety from artistic directors who are like, how can I spread the word about the work that we're doing here so other theaters will produce these fine plays? How can I get, without travel funds, without the access to work on videotape, because it can't be videotaped, how can I see what other theaters are doing? And yet, in spite of it all, people are not sharing scripts or asking for scripts. Um, the sample group of theaters of all sizes um, produce no more than one co-production in a three-year period. So there seems to be, and that may be changing with the new economy, certainly. Some of these statistics are a few years old now um, because of how damn long it took us to write this thing. But um, the, the fact is there's very little cooperation on this. Second productions, by contrast, are undervalued, despite them being very valued by playwrights. Playwrights need second productions and third productions to finish their work, and they need them to raise their royalty stream. Right? They need subsequent productions to earn something for all the effort and time. Co-productions, which build in added life for plays, are few. Half of the theaters surveyed seldom or never request plays that have premiered elsewhere. The institutional emphasis on premieres and the scarcity of productions means that a first production may also be and will probably be the last. Writers and their agents therefore struggle to manage their one shot strategically. And this is a very interesting and painful psychological thing. Um, playwrights love working in small theaters. They love the relationships with small and mid-sized theaters. They love the intimacy of it, the excitement of it. And yet, when it comes time to manage their one shot with a play, they tend to withhold their plays from the smaller theaters whom they love because economically they have no choice but to go with the larger theater because A, the royalty stream is bigger, B, theaters tend, the theater community tends to produce plays that have either been produced in New York or at large theaters. So the only way to ensure future life for your play is to hold out for that production at a large, prominent theater. So, so it creates a situation where theaters are kind of working against their own best interests. Um, uh, this is something that we heard actually in this very city that we heard echoed elsewhere. And it's, uh, it's something that resonated very strongly to us because playwrights talk about getting access to theaters and how hard it is to get to the decision maker. And one of the artistic directors in this town said, everyone wants the same 10 playwrights. So theaters are, having, are competing for access to a very small pool of playwrights. This fight for access which has various sources, including the desire for work that makes an important contribution, the need to gain further access to important writers because you've done ones who are important, the need to generate press, the institutional ego and professional standing within the field, and possibly a kind of uh, community or group thinking about what's good because theaters tend to produce what other theaters have been successful with. And this also finding that, you know, anybody who reads through American Theater Magazine and sees the list of plays that are being produced and how many productions last year's Manhattan Theater Club um, success or Playwrights Horizons play get, um, this runs really counter, and we, we haven't been able to parse it out statistically with this notion that everybody's doing three world premieres out of a nine plays. Do you know? Um, because it seems like everybody is doing the same play that everybody else is doing. So there's some sort of um, reporting um, split. Um, here's a, a quote from a, a play, from an artistic director. 
um, out of this frustration. And this is an artistic director of a fairly large size theater. Do you know how hard it is for me to get on some new playwrights lists? It's really hard. I've got to beg someone to email me something. Who do you got to blow to get a copy of Dead Man's Cell Phone? <laughs> here's our fourth, uh, uh, here's another key finding. Um, this is uh, something we call the downsizing of the American play. Most everyone involved with the work, from the theaters to the playwrights, have seen their expectations for that work downsized. Artistic directors commonly believe that smaller venues are better suited to today's new plays. And so theater companies are building and have built smaller and smaller theaters to house the work. There is little agreement that our viable dramaturgy has also been downsized in terms of cast size, in terms of um, production, uh, you know, technical demands. There is little disagreement. Um, right, there's a little disagreement. Uh, nowhere is there more evidence than in cast size. We have some fun statistics on that. Artistic leaders, meanwhile, assail playwrights for writing small plays, while playwrights wrestle over whether five or six characters, or actors, is the maximum number to make their play producible. So we have the situation where play, artistic directors are saying, why are the plays so small? And playwrights are saying, if I write for more than five characters, five actors, I don't think I'm going to get produced. So it's this kind of uh, lock. Um, remember, for artistic directors, oh, a, a quote, our theaters are, this is our artistic director, our theaters are smaller. We purposely built theaters that we felt were sustainable for new work. And this is a kind of prevailing feeling in the field that we have found. Um, Remember, for artistic directors, cast size and composition is the single biggest obstacle to producing a play. And too expensive is a close second, and related, obviously. So for evidence of this shrinkage of plays, we looked back to a moment in the late 60s and early 70s when the center of new play production began to shift from New York to the regional theaters. So the first three plays that moved from the regional theaters to um, uh, New York, as you can see, were Arena Stage, The Great White Hope, with 63 actors playing 247 roles. <laughs> Indians, which also moved in, I think, 69 from Arena, 47 characters. We need to do this slide backwards. Let's start with the 16. The Trial of Catonsville 9 from the Mark Taper Forum in 70 or 71 with 16 characters. You know, and now it's like everybody talks about, wow, August Osage County had, what, 11, 13 actors, something like that. Um, and that is the exception, certainly, rather than the rule. But this is what we come from, and that's where we've gone. Um, another key finding, the dwindling audience. Every, you know, there are some things everybody agrees on in the theater, playwrights and theaters. One of them is that we're losing audiences at both ends. The audience we have is aging and dying. They grow more conservative as they age. So the work to them, because they are the subscriber base, becomes more conservative. And younger, newer, more diverse audiences are not being cultivated effectively to take their place. There's, difficult, there's, there's disagreement, as you might expect, about where to lay the blame or how to fix it. Again, we hit that same perceptual divide. Playwrights believe that theaters don't know how to develop writers' audiences, young audiences, audiences of color, and non-traditional theater audiences. They market everything the same way. Theaters market everything for seasons and brand rather than this play is unique and different. This is something we heard from playwrights a lot um, and pl because plays need to be sold uniquely. Risk aversion is killing the form, playwrights believe. Theaters lay some of the problem at playwrights' feet. They don't care about the audience. 
They write for a small group of their friends. They don't write for a broad audience. And they don't write for my community. They don't understand my community. Um, this is not our statistic. It's the NEA's. The NEA reports that a percentage, the percentage of U.S. adults who attended a non-musical play over a 12-month period fell between 1992 and, 19, and 2008 from 13% of the population to 9.4%. So we've lost four out of 25 million in audiences for non-musical plays. And this is not even new plays. This is just plays without music. So that, I don't know what that, what is that, 18% or something, the audience has fallen off in 18 years. So if we keep losing a percent a year, how long will it take us to lose that audience? Did you have a question about that? Is that I don't know if they've put them out. It's one of the things that I don't think they've published them yet, but it's one of the things a lot of people are interested in is getting underneath because they've got to have it regionally. It's beginning to try and get underneath it. And, and one of the other things that, that we ran across that's difficult is there isn't, within that there is not a distinction between a Christmas carol, which is a play, and you know any of the rest of the things that we might all be thinking about. So it, it, there's a, I, I suspect it will only... You know the gap. How much the fall off is, though, I don't know because the, the question underneath it, that's something we're working a lot on and thinking about, is you know is the is the fall off plays overall, or is it for is it even steeper for certain kinds of plays? And where and where is that you know is that audience falling? I mean, if if Shakespeare is done in eight hundred seat houses, and new plays are being done in eighty seat houses, do you know what, where who, how is that being affected? Yeah, BJ. Also, how does that reflect? Right. Right. Does one person count? Yeah. I choose to go see this play right. or this new play and put down the forty bucks to see it as opposed to well as part of the season. Right. Yeah. Right. Um, and I don't think we. I don't. I don't think. But it's a good question, and I'll, maybe I can try and find that out by the I, afternoon. See, that's, yeah. That's yeah. Yeah. I'm having a small problem in that I've lost the screen. I can actually go look at that, but we would all have to look at it. So <laughs> I'm going to try and work on it for lunch. Um, so uh, that's a good segue, too, because uh, much of the conversation between in play, playwrights and uh, theaters talking about audience talk was about subscription audiences. 78% um, of the theaters have subscription audiences, accounting for about 42% of their average ticket sales. It ranges from about 10 to 10 to 85% of ticket sales. So obviously, um, for playwrights, subscription audiences represent the big block. You know, how can a theater move forward artistically if they're struggling to keep their subscription base and they need to lock things in that they know? And for theaters, you know, that's where uh, I know everybody, every theater is struggling with how to get more single ticket buyers in, how to have more flexibility, but still to maintain the income stream that uh, and support that subscription provides. Um, some quotes to give you a sense of the opposite sides of this. Um, Artistic director, my own sense is of isolation from the playwrights and the broad-based community that are theater goers. I don't feel like the playwrights are particularly writing about the audience's issues. We heard of this again and again. Playwright. Theaters are not interested in producing for a writer's audience. Playwright. Theaters think they're talking about their audience base. They're actually concerned with about 
ten, the 10 or 20 people who give a lot of money. So that's that sense that theaters are protecting their assets, which are their funding, their big funders, donors, board, key board members, and not really talking about audience generally. Um, and of course, artistic directors say again and again, my job is to understand my audience and to learn to listen to them. Um, and then, but the one thing that everybody agrees on that seems like an opportunity area is that the current system of new play development in it, there are few opportunities for writers to get to know theater goers over time. Productions are too sporadic, and ongoing relationships with theaters and by extension communities of ticket buyers are rarely sustained. Um, I'm, I'm drawing towards the end, kind of at the last section here. Just want to uh, point out something that's not so much a finding as a fear. It's like probably the key fear that runs under this study from what we heard, which is that everyone is afraid and, and identifying that theater has moved out of the cultural conversation, that this is really a conversation, this is really a study um, about impact, an impact that on both sides of this divide that we're describing, people feel that the theater has lost. Is not So how, the big question is, what are the practices that can re-energize the theater in such a way as that it, re, it moves from the margins of the cultural conversation to a more central location? Finally, um, our, uh, our sort of final finding is uh, that there are things that are working, that there is uh, some, uh, at least small hope for the future. Um, and uh, we've sort of broken them down in terms of uh, thematically, like they're working because. So um, first one is, uh, one thing that works is uh, it works when theaters forge strong relationships with playwrights over time. A number of theaters were discussed by playwrights um, that uh, many of them are small or intimate theaters, some of them are defunct, that really the theaters, the playwrights believe are doing good work and doing well by them. They tend to be theaters that are encouraging, passionate, that do what they say they'll do, that focus developmental energy on production and not on endless development, and that support writers through multiple productions over the course of years. Um, interestingly, about half of the theater, this is something that we, didn't, we haven't totally wrestled with, but we asked two separate questions. One to the theaters, we asked them, uh, where do they see themselves as leaders, local leaders, regional leaders, national leaders in new play production? And we asked them, who do they see as the leaders in the field? And the theater, and then we asked the playwrights, who are the theaters that have produced the greatest number of your plays over time? And as you might imagine, those lists are, are somewhat different. The theaters list involves is, is long, many, many theaters, many smaller theaters, um, and about half of the but about half of the theaters that are seen by artistic directors as leaders are on the playwrights list, and and then there are a lot of theaters that are not on the artistic directors line of vision that the playwrights see as leaders. Um, uh, so that's one thing that's working. The theaters that, that, at least for playwrights, theaters that maintain relationships over time. Playwright residencies, in some measure, sometimes, and they're very complicated to do well, um, are, are helpful. How do writers get to know a theater and its community? How do they show mutual loyalty and commitment? There's a case study in the book of a 10-year residency uh, by James Still, the playwright, uh, L.A.-based playwright at Indiana Rep. 
And uh, Jim, you know, is involved in production, directing, artistic and community in Indiana. He's there, I think, on a monthly basis, um, even though he doesn't live there. And both sides talk about that uh, residency as a very valuable and important and um, successful thing. So residencies help. Community support for playwrights. Low, including local collaborations between theaters. Um, one of the great examples of this is San Francisco, the Bay Area. Um, and there's two case studies in the book, or two in one, about playwrights Adam Bach and Liz Duffy Adams, who have been supported in an ad hoc cooperative way by a number of organizations in San Francisco. Some of them are like playwright development organizations. Some of them are small theaters. Some of them are larger theaters. But they tend to sort of take Adam or Liz into the community. They're developed here. They're hosted there. They're produced here. Then their next play is picked up there. And so they've each had multi-play, multi-year relationships that are supported by an entire community of playwrights, which strikes me as a model that is very um, important for Chicago to look at because you guys work so collaboratively. You're such an ensemble-based community. And uh, so I'd be interested to hear what you guys uh, think about that if you get a chance to read it. Um, Another thing is community support for playwrights, collaborations between theater and development labs across size, mission, and place. I mean, the great example of this, of course, is August Wilson, you know, who, I mean, there's not another model like that, but there are other examples, you know, where he has residencies at the O'Neill and the Playwright Center and New Traumatists, and then he's done at Yale and the Huntington and MTC and the Taper and the Goodman and the Seattle Rep, and that over a period of many years and many productions, this kind of multi-layered um, resource-sharing alignment is forged that sustains a playwright to create a major body of work. Um, community support for playwrights, the power of multiple productions, and the advantages of avoiding commercial production. So this is kind of a little bit like the Cleanhouse story, or there's a good case study in the uh, book uh, about Amy Freed and the Beard of Avon and how that moved from uh, large theater to large theater, the cooperation involved in that, and what was the upside and what were some of the losses of choosing not to go commercial with that play um, in terms of the playwright. But again, it's a cooperative model on some level. Um, combating premier-itis through producing networks. Um, this is uh, one of the great examples um, of something that's happening now that... Uh, uh, we talked about a lot, and Mellon has talked about a lot, and David Dower and his study for them have talked about a lot, is the National New Play Network and their Continued Life of New Plays Fund. You know, the National New Play Network is 26 sort of small to mid-sized theaters across the country. They, um, they sign up, at least three theaters sign up for what they call a rolling world premiere of a play, so they share, share the premiere credit, but each play, uh, each production is discrete, has different cast, different director, and so a playwright can see their work in short order over several productions, can earn from several productions, and there's a national collaboration between organizations. Um, and finally on this score, successful audience education around new work. How does audience development and education differ from marketing? So how are we educating audiences around new work? And um, one example we look at is uh, from Chicago is Steppenwolf's First Look 101, which you probably know more about than I do, but it's a way of investing the audience in the whole life and development of a new work and creating among the audience advocates for that work and even sort of tour guides of the process for other audience members. So... 
one final thing before we take a break and then take questions. Um, these, these sort of better practices that we've just outlined, uh, they're all discrete ideas. They may not be applicable, though there might be things that can be stolen or taken from them. Um, but they seem to be working on the same set of principles, which I just want to list for you now. Um, because these are principles that after these four and a half years of work on this seem to be things that keep resonating as the sort of, you know, threads through the maze, ways out. Um, these these practices stress the depth and duration of relationship between individual artists and institutions. They favor clear and authentic communication, explore the potential for resource sharing and collaboration, organizational cooperation, and even institutional humility to share. Um, three, they stay flexible, suiting the process to the project. D, they alter scale. In other words, small theaters dream big and large ones work very intimately and they redraw maps, you know, the way that the National New Play Network has this map that is a kind of alternate to Lort. Do you know, here are theaters that are not large regional theaters that are doing something together in a really systematic and important way. Um, they rethink assumptions about how money is made, paid, and granted. They bring audiences into the work early and often, to use that great Chicago phrase, giving them better tools to appreciate new plays. They acknowledge that context alters perceptions and that playwrights, artistic directors, funders, and audiences look at the same picture and see very different things. And they admit, and wherever possible, embrace risk, ambition, and the untried. Thank you.